back to yet another week of Behind the Lens. Can you believe this is last week of June, last, last Monday in June, six months, and we're still feeling the after effects of the, of the 2020 lockdown. Um, but we're slowly coming back here. Film screenings are happening. Movie theaters are open. And of course, Behind the Lens is here. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers, the shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, the writers, the directors, the actors, the costume designers, the composers, the film editors, the sound editors, sound mixers, you name it, we're talking to them. Uh... So as and if you can't find if you're listening right now, obviously you're listening to adrenalineradio.com or you're watching us on the adrenalineradio.com Facebook page live stream. But if you miss us on Mondays, always remember you can find us at behindthelensonline.net generally by Tuesday and then out on iTunes, Apple, uh, Spreaker, Podbean. Um, we're all over on all the podcast platforms after that. And hopefully we're going to have some, uh, news about, uh, some radio stations, uh, in the Southern United States that are going to be picking up behind the lens. So that'll be exciting. Fingers crossed for that to happen. Um, but my fingers are crossed because we've got a really fun show today and hopefully a director may be able to join us. Uh, he's actually shooting, uh, our, joining us live today will be screenwriter Chris Johnson. Hopefully, depending on his shooting schedule, director Presley Paris will also join us to talk about their new film, Bad Detectives. Uh, it just came out last week. It's available digitally. Uh, and it's an interesting little film. It is a mystery thriller about two girls... Their, their grandfathers were business partners of an, in a detective agency. And on the grandparents' passing, uh, the two gentlemen willed the business to their granddaughters, who at one point were best friends, then had a falling out, and now have to, have to get along in order to maybe take over the business, but more importantly, find out who murdered their grandfathers, something that they are convinced was the, was the cause of their demise as opposed to random heart attacks um, at the same time, on the same street, at the same place. So we're going to talk to Chris at the midpoint of the show. But before then, you've heard me talk about it the past couple weeks. I've been mentioning to you 12 Mighty Orphans. Uh, this is, it's based on Jim Dent's book. It is written by Ty Roberts, Lane Garrison, and Kevin Mayer. It is directed by Ty Roberts. Our regular listeners over all these years knows um, my respect for Ty as a, as a filmmaker, as a director, as a storyteller, uh, given his first film, The Iron Orchard. And uh, you heard Ty and I believe Lane also on, with him on the show uh, talking about that film a couple years ago. But now they're back with 12 Mighty Orphans. And this is, it's based on the book by Jim Dent, which is a true story. It's the story of the Mighty Mites, the football team of a Fort Worth orphanage that during the Great Depression, 1938-1939, um, they, 
they played just because you got to do something. Um, they didn't have shoes. They didn't have a football. And with Rusty Russell coming to the school as a teacher and a football coach, um, Rusty Russell turned their lives, turned the school around, turned their lives around, and took the Mighty Mites all the way to the Texas State Championships. Um, this is their story. Rusty Russell, as I've mentioned in the past, he is the man responsible for the spread formation that we see on football fields across America today. Um, and watching how this unfolds within the this film is, it's really, it's interesting, it's moving, um, it's compelling. The film as a whole, it's inspiring, it's hopeful. Stars Luke Wilson as Rusty, as Rusty Russell. You have Treat Williams as a newspaper man, uh, Eamon Carter. You've got Martin Sheen as Doc Hall. He's, he's Doc at the, uh, at doctor at the orphanage. And uh, he likes to think of himself as a football aficionado. And he works with Rusty uh, in bringing these boys, building their esteem, building their confidence, and building a team. And the way the film is structured... Doc is really narrating, and we go from a narration into the actual events. It's seamlessly done. It's beautifully done. And here, and Martin Sheen as Doc, he brings a gra- a, a really a legendary gravitas that fits the decades, that fits a well-worn life. Uh, Robert Duvall shows up. Wayne Knight. Newman. Um, Wayne Knight, do we ever see him play a really good guy? I don't think so. But here, as Frank Wynn, who runs the orphanage, he goes to the far extreme of bad and malevolence. Um, and it's really, the scenes of actual brutality to the orphans, um, Ty doesn't hold back in shooting this. Because this is what happened. Uh, of course, Lane Garrison, he wrote it. Lane's got to be in it. Um, plus, he's a bestie with Ty. And uh, he plays Luther, an opposing football coach, who himself is a snake oil salesman uh, and not to be trusted. But cinematography is by David McFarland, who did The Ballad of Lefty Brown, Jared Moshe's film that starred Bill Pullman, his Western Mark Orton, who did Nebraska uh, and The Last Shift that starred Richard Jenkins. Mark Wharton does the score. Uh, James Crouch, who was the editor on Iron Orchard for Ty, is back again uh, with him as editor here. So without any further ado, take a listen to my interview with Ty as we dig deep, dig in our heels, pass the ball, and... Uh, Go for a touchdown in this interview on 12 Mighty Orphans. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you? I am so excited to talk to you again. Well, well fabulous. I, I'm excited as well. And when I saw that you were directing 12 Mighty Orphans with this cast, once again, a huge, big-name cast, another Texas story. 38 Texas, nonetheless. I gotta tell you, this film is so incredible. 
I had heard over the over the years, I'd heard about Rusty Russell. But I did not know all the details of this story. I knew that Russell really is responsible for the spread formation that we now know so well today. Yeah, yeah, you know, I think he was, you know, without <laughs> intending to <laughs> to do uh, a, a, a lasting sort of uh, formation that would, you know, go on and evolve yeah. over the years. You know, I think he just was fighting tooth and nail to figure out a way to be competitive yeah and that's that's what it did well and i think a lot uh, i think a lot too was survival his own his own survival yeah yeah he was a survivor that's for sure so it it really it just goes to show you you know if you're forced to make the best of a situation and you have a survivor's mentality and a can-do attitude, you're going to figure it out, or you're going to at least, you know, figure it out to a certain degree. And I think, you know, that that combination of uh, traits that he had and and was able to share and spread and teach to others was, was why he was renowned. Yeah. I got to tell you, Ty, to see your growth as as a director to as a storyteller here, this is amazing. This whole story is amazing. Now, obviously, after Lane, you know, and his involvement in Iron Orchard, you can't tell him no when he says, hey, man, I got a script. Yeah. What, what spoke to you about this story that made you, sit, you know, sit up and say, I've got to direct this one? Well, you know, everyone loves a great... Uh, underdog story, you know, and, and sports story, it, for that matter. And, you know, I grew up in the era of Hoosiers and Rudy and uh, the Wildcats, <laughs> and, and then later on Friday Night Lights, and being from West Texas and, and growing up in a football culture, you know, football has always been a part of my life. So I, there was always an interest there. Um, what I had come to see later on, you know, with subsequent films that, that aspired to be, you know, equal to some of the greats, you know, and maybe quite didn't get there, um, it was just really how to, how to frame a wonderful uh, football story, you know, interwoven with a, a, a great dramatic arc. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a filmmaker... You know, every filmmaker wants to tell a unique and fresh and appealing story. And so in tackling sports, it's like, you know, there's so many great coaches out there and there's so many great locker room speeches out there and a lot of inspirational sort of ideas and scenes and whatnot. But, you know, if you can, if you can go beyond that, and and interweave the, the real lives of these characters into the into the game and show how their their real lives are paralleling you know their drive towards the championship um i just i think that kind of resonates with me on a uh you know even more important level because you, you kind of you know you have your cake and you get to eat it too you you, you got the spores but you also have a great drama, you know, set yeah. to the backdrop of the Great Depression and Rusty's backstory as, as an orphan and, you know, uh, 
all the orphans having such a really traumatic uh, stories within their own life. Yeah. And this, so, what I appreciate that you did is when we get to the end credits, and it's no spoiler because it's a true, it's a real life story, you give us the epilogue of where each one of the Mighty Mites went in life. That's right. And yeah, we, we thought that was real important, you know, to show what these boys went on to do to these characters, so... Well, very much so, because early on in the film, and, and we've got Luke Wilson, you know, as Rusty, talking about giving the kids confidence and beating down Wayne Knight as, as the orphanage CEO, Frank Wynn. You know, beating him down is, no, they will go somewhere. We're gi I'm giving them the confidence. I'm building them up. So it was always that constant battle of hope and inspiration versus being beaten into the dirt. And to see what triumphed and what prevailed is so inspirational to anybody watching this film. I'm so happy that you did that. <laughs> well, well, thank you. Uh, it's always nice to hear uh, reaffirmations of that because you know that's the intention, and you never want to uh, overdo it or cram anything down anybody's throat. But you know, you you have tropes in sports, yeah, in life, in life, and but you know, if you go watch a game or ever ever you know have a child that's in sports, you know the coaches are giving those speeches. They're trying to trying to be uh, inspirational and motivational, and uh, you know that's just part of it. But at the same time, you don't want to overdo it, you know, because it can be real borderline at times and. You know, we tried to we tried to just balance it. Um, we have a few of those moments, of course. Mm -hmm. but we also have just sort of some more intimate moments between Rusty and some of the players. Yeah. And, and Doc Hall, um, you know, who Martin portrays so well. Um, so yeah, it's just it was a real kind of a dance between uh, keeping a, a really balanced story between all the characters the sports elements, and the dramatic sort of arcs mm -hmm. that, that are behind all the characters, you know. So it was it was a, a balancing act, no question. But um, I, I'm, I appreciate you saying that and feel like it, it you know, we, we have something that is, is fresh, hopefully. You actually you do. And, you know, when it comes to the inspirational speeches, you know, everybody thinks it's always the coaches giving the speeches. You've got that third act speech that that Hardy Brown gives. Jake Austin Walker does an amazing job in the role. And, you know, you have, and thanks to, you know, James Crouch, you, you re-team with James as your editor. Um, yeah. You've got slow motion. He's giving this powerful speech. They're down, they're out, and he explodes and inspires them. You've got... Your score, Mark Wharton's score, and you hear the tremolo of the strings that then morphs into single-note piano. And then you've got David, whose work I just loved what he did with Jared Moshe on Ballad of Lefty Brown. You get, oh, yeah. You've got David as your cinematographer and frames this perfectly as you see them run down this tunnel out to the field. And you see Luke Wilson as the last one, but you see a light at the end of it. 
it is the seminal light at the end of the tunnel moment in this film. Good eye. And Good it eye. is so glorious to have James's editing come together with that slow-mo as each of the boys is going down that tunnel and you've got the camera in tighter on them, then you pull out wide to have Luke standing there with just that light. And yeah. absolutely, it is it it just gives you chills watching it. <laughs> Well, that, that's great. I mean, every person you mentioned on there was a, was a, you know, just an absolute wonder to collaborate with. And, you know, we each had uh, just such a unique process through throughout the, the composition of the score and the editing. And, you know, it's, it feels, you know, with James in particular and, uh, you know, Lane, who I actually co-wrote with, it, it mm -hmm. feels like I'm, I'm having some familiarity with some of these, you know, key collaborators. <laughs> you know, Lane and I spent six or eight months in a 10 by 12 office, uh, you know, trying to rewrite a script. And uh, we basically, you know, it was darn near a page winner, but um, it, was a, it was a wonderful collaboration from the get-go. So, um, you know, and then and then through the end with Mark Orton and, and James and, you know, guy, Johnny Marshall mixing the sound, mm -hmm. all these all these key components to the process. And during the filming, David, who was another Texan, by the way. Oh, was, I know. <laughs> you know, and I, I tend to air towards, um, you know, foreign and kind of uh, lesser. Uh, Hollywood influence type cinematographers, but I had seen some of David's work uh, that he had shot over in the Middle East and and India, and was just taken taken aback by it, and just thought, what a what a unique guy, and uh, ended up just really getting along with him, and you know we colored the movie together with our. Uh, our colorist who I worked with on the Iron Orchard, so that's actually who introduced us. So that's how all this works, you know, just talking to people and and connecting the dots, and you know, we're kind of finding our stride and in, in some of these key collaborators. It's nice. You know, I got to talk to you about your visual tonal bandwidth and working with David. I mean, what you did on Iron Orchard, you bring in a French cinematographer um, with that very specific Texan light. David, I don't know if he uh, he knows he knows the light because he's from Texas. I don't think he shot any films about Texas though, which is the funny part. But what you and yeah, David, what you and David do with your visual tonal bandwidth, um, the coloring, your colorist, you guys did an amazing job washing everything out, bringing it down to that dust bowl um, kind of tone with those pastel pastel, you know, pale dingy whites and no real color anywhere but then you bring in you've got black and white war footage and then to lighten things especially in reflective moments and noticeably with Luke because you play the light off of his glasses um, you get some beautiful sun flares even a gorgeous moonlight flare that gives a great prismatic effect of that, you know, that idea of hope and inspiration. So this entire, not only do you have a very cinematic 
look. But then you bring in the sports. And shooting sports, as you know, is never easy. But you got so I'm really curious how you and David, what you came, how you designed the visual construct that you have to meld the, the, the sport with the drama and make it all cinematic with that beautiful look to it. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, you know, it, it really, um, believe it or not, we had shot listed, you know, everything and kind of talked about it. And once we got to the field and started shooting, we would essentially watch the play being run and the shot list went out the window for the most part. I mean, you know, we knew what we needed in general, of course, but it was like, I would kind of look at it and I would say, look, man, I mean, we could just do a standard coverage here and grab this. And, you know, David would say, well, what if we just turn around here and do this? And it was like, okay, let's just boom, let's do it. And because it's such a time constraint, uh, working with, you know, three cameras at that juncture. Uh, we brought wow. in another camera for football. And then we also had a, a, a crane. And um, you've got a ton of extras. You've got two football teams. You've got, you know, certain, you know, the night shots were like freezing. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're, you don't have a whole lot of time to contemplate. <laughs> so... You know, we we got great glass for the cameras. We got uh, vintage um, Cineo Vision and Crystal Express glass, which is like you know Apocalypse Now and Dororo yeah. type Beautiful stuff. anamorphs. Yeah, anamorphic lenses, and you know we got on the same page. And I kind of, you know, David understood my vision by this point, and we had worked through it. And it was just kind of up to him to, like, how do we get, you know, the best and quickest, you know, shots that we can from this. And, uh, you know, there were obviously, a, a, you know, on, on big runs and things like that that we really had to cover properly. But um, it was really just a trust factor there. You know, I, I, I totally trusted him, and I think he trusted me. And when I said I had to have something, he would certainly get it. And, Otherwise, we just kind of kept the train running and, and trying to get through the night. And, you know, we had uh, we had the right tools and, and team to, to make it work, and I think it, it really worked well. And, I mean, I was real worried about not having enough material for some of the games, um, and we kept thinking we might have to go back and do some reshoots. But because of the pandemic, we just made it work. <laughs> and we figured out, you know, how to extend things and how to make things uh, feel a little longer or cut to different angles that made it feel a little bit more, uh, you know, dynamic. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, w- w- the war scenes, too, were supposed to be filmed later on. And we just we had to cobble together a bunch of ideas and and pull a, a fresh new perspective out of our hats in order to, to make that work from previously filmed material. So, um, believe well, it or not. Well, I have to tell you, the war scenes, I think it worked to your favor to have to cobble something together because it, when you talk to veterans, no matter what the war, 
nothing is fluid in the memories. It's bits and pieces, especially under fire. So we really get that disjointed, fractured feeling with the oh, with those war sequences. And I I mean I'm looking at it and I thought it was a smart move intentionally on your part. Well, you know, the fragmented five was definitely. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we were certainly limited. I mean, we were, it's like, you know, I don't know, creating a quilt. Here are your 10 pieces of material. Do the best with it you can. Mm -hmm. You know, make the prettiest quilt you can. And that's kind of what we did. We had a very limited number of of films and material to draw from and we kind of rewrote the the structure of it in terms of the script to fit just the visual so um you know it, it there was some more uh i will say in the original script there was a little bit more of a narrative tie-in to it but mm -hmm. you know i i think you're right i think it's it's very true you know people tend to recall moments of trauma in in fragmented thought yeah so i think it works well i think it's uh you know it, it, it provides that sense of of urgency that's for sure definitely you know this is a huge cast ty huge cast but oh. it's an exemplary cast how difficult was casting for this film i mean i have to say lane is you just want to beat the crap out of him uh <laughs> He does that oh, yeah. so well. But, yeah. you know, and you've got Wayne Knight, and we always expect Wayne to, to have some sort of Machiavellian edge to him. But you really bring that out in full force here. I know. But one of the real standouts for my money is having this the story told, the voiceover and the story being told by Doc Hall, by Martin's character. Because yeah. that calm and that confidence and assuredness that we hear in his voice as he takes us through the games is yeah. fabulous. So I'm curious how challenging it was to put this cast together, to, to nab Luke, to get Martin. Lane's a given. He's got to do it no matter what because he works with you <laughs> and then he wrote the script. I'm sure you gave him no choice. But I'm curious about yeah. putting this putting this cast together and then each one of the mighty mites these a these actors are phenomenal <laughs> they are great they are great and you know um every filmmaker screenwriter thinks their script is great once you're going to take it out to shop it around and try to get it cast and you know the process can be pretty grueling in truth um and there were really only a couple of people that I think could have played Rusty Russell. Mm -hmm. And, you know, two, really, to be precise, and we got, we got one of them. So um, we, were, we were very, very fortunate. I had uh, luckily had a, a little bit of a history with Luke. I worked on his first film as a director. And... Um, uh, I was just a cameraman, if you can believe that, and and but but had a good rapport with him, and we we shared a lot of likes and music and and cinema, and uh, you know kept in touch there for a little while. So when he got the script and 
you know, he's a big sports fan and oh, yeah. uh, played football at St. Mark's through, through high school and was a wide receiver and just like Rusty Russell. And, you know, prior to even being a part of this movie, he, he's read like two or three biographies on coaches. So it's like something that interested him anyway. And so um, it was a perfect set, you know. Uh, uh, a quirky, tall, lean, uh, you know, actor plays a real-life character that pretty much mimics that, mm-hmm. you know. And, and, and scrappy to their own, you know, in their own right to a degree, you know. Both, uh, you know, having grown up in Texas and playing football and just, you know, doing stuff. Um, and going to ranches and, you know, being around the culture here, you know. It's, it's something that they could very much connect with and you know once luke was involved um it really just um it it, it made the project real you know and it allowed us to actually go out and get this thing cast pretty quickly and you know martin got involved and the next thing you know you know wayne knight was on and you know lane was obviously on and we did have to twist his arm uh about a half a degree but not much um he was all over it um and then you know vanessa shaw came on and then we we were really looking hard for uh hardy brown for a long time and what i didn't want to do was hire a bunch of young buff hollywood you know model slash actors uh to come play these roles which is what i was getting mm-hmm. from casting directors and you know submissions and i just i really wanted to find authentic kids and you know aside from jake austin walker levi uh dylan and jacob laughlin every other actor of those 12 body orphans and and the other kids that surround them are pretty much local wow so and i i think there's a couple of breakouts in there um you know weedy uh Seeley, who's who's played by um slade monroe and uh you know couple others that i just thought did such a superb job and obviously jake austin walker i think is a is just a super talented guy very dedicated um and very serious about his craft and oh. that was super cool yeah and and the so. and the wonderful thing with these kids ty is that we see them come we see their growth we see the characters growth not only as individuals but coming together as a group, relying on each other, learning how to be able to trust something they haven't been able to do as orphans and under, you know, the thumb and the and the paddle of, of Frank Wynn. And you don't shy away from brutality, but you use that to show us the growth in each of these characters and then when we get to the end credit epilogues, it's amazing how incredibly you did with the casting to see the similarities of these actors to their real-life counterparts. Yeah, some of them were really... Wow! <laughs> I know. It was 
really interesting. Well, I do have one more question for you, Ty. The, sure. The big one. This was such a leap from Iron Orchard. What did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker in making this leap to 12 Mighty Orphans that you will now take forward into your next project? Because you have, your growth as a storyteller and as a filmmaker, I see it all over this film from Iron Orchard to now. So I'm curious what you learned with this film that I'll now see in your next one. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I think, I, I'm not sure how visually you'll be able to see it, but um, we, we enjoyed, enjoyed ourselves on this film so much, and we had such a good cast and crew, and, you know, my partner Houston Hill and other producers, Brent and Brian, I mean, we, we just set a tone for work and in a fun and playful way. And I, I really think that, that everybody enjoyed themselves so much. And that's not always the case in this industry. And it can actually be pretty painful and, you know, non-enjoyable at times. Um, I, I think to me, it's trying to create um, an atmosphere and a culture that that promotes this to a degree and keeps it um, a level playing field and keeps people involved and keeps egos at check and and keeps it collaborative and you know it it can slip away when you get into the bigger leagues right mm -hmm. so I just I want to make sure we keep it um, keep it familial. You know, and, and just like Rusty, you know, keeping that team tight. And I just, you know, I, I really want to continue to collaborate with, with true collaborators who are in it for the art and not for anything else. Um, and I think we've been real lucky at finding that. And um, I hope we're able to take it, you know, even to the next level. So it doesn't mean it has to be the next level in budget, but just right. you know, in terms of stories and, and uh, you know, exposure, I guess. So, so I, one uh, thing you've shown me is you don't need money to tell a good story. You <laughs> have shown what can be done. Well, with you. Because you get more creative with your storytelling and you focus on the story. I saw that with Iron Orchard. I see it in 12 Mighty Orphans. Well, thank you. You know, you just got to be super resourceful in this industry. And I'm grown up resourceful, you know, just everything I've ever done. So it really carries over, I think, into that. And you can't just throw money at things to fix them. You got to really get in and dig it, dig around and figure out the best way to get it done. You know, I, I feel like if you can find collaborators that uh, understand that and are at that same level, then, then you know, the sky's the limit. Well, you, you're certainly up there in the sky with this one, Ty. Job well, so well done. So, <laughs> so well done. I can't wait for the next one and to talk to you again. Well, likewise. It's good to talk to you, and, and I'm real happy for your uh, uh, your interest in it and all your, your kind comments. Uh, 
that well. Thank you for that. Oh, thank so. you, Ty. And I'll talk to you again soon, I hope. Okay, I hope so. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, talk to you later. Bye. And that was Ty Roberts, uh, co-writer and director of 12 Mighty Orphans. It is in theaters now. I truly, truly cannot encourage you enough to see it. Um, it is, it, it's a family film. It's hopeful. It's inspirational. Uh, every performance is outstanding. And uh, it is a true story. So, and with now, without any further ado, we're going to welcome in the very creative screenwriter, Chris Johnson. Hi, Chris. Yes, hello. Hello, Debbie. How are you? Oh, doing well. Yes, doing well. Well, what what is this this little this little gem called Bad Detectives? Um, this is so. This story it's so intriguing. What you've done and what Presley did as a director in terms of casting. Um, you have this set in Chinatown. That's a multicultural uh, experience. Watching this. Uh, we've got former, former childhood friends who had a falling out. Their grandfather stayed best friends, owned a detective agency together. And now the respective granddaughters are kind of forced to put up with each other, uh, to figure out what really happened to their grandfathers. And it's a very interesting spin. And it comes down to, we've got Chinese culture tied in here. Um, history with artifacts. Talk to me, Chris. This is what was swirling around in your mind when you came up with this. <laughs> yes, um, and you really encapsulated this very well. Uh, that was, uh, uh, um, and I think we achieved, I mean, from the screenwriter's viewpoint, um, most of the goals that we were setting out to achieve. Uh, you know, we we wanted a story that portrayed the cultural differences, but didn't go deeper than that. I mean, we wanted it to be these two young women, you know, dealing with uh, their broken relationship and now trying to solve the mystery. It, it becomes relatively quickly apparent that the grandfather's deaths were not accidental, that, um, they didn't accidentally fall off the roof, uh, that they were clearly murdered. And these two young women um, put their differences aside and uh, go to work and, and, and try to solve the crime. Yes. And you bring in all of these other elements. You bring in a councilman who's kind of shady and one of his own, quote-unquote, assistants or lieutenants, is tipping off the girls saying, oh, yeah, I was working with your grandfathers. Yeah, there's something not right about him. He could be the, about the councilman, the assemblyman, um, which is kind of interesting that you'd have somebody that close to uh, a local politician who, you know, wants to essentially gut them uh, <laughs> and destroy them. Um, and as we proceed in the film... You very quickly see why when he introduces the assemblyman at a fundraiser. Um, he's the one with the political aspirations, and he's going to step on whoever gets in his way. 
That seems you mm-hmm. you've got that set up really well. But then you've also got the police. You've got the detectives from LAPD and they aren't being any help. They're dismissing the girls as being quote unquote bad detectives. You know, leave it to us, He-Man, you know, real detectives. <laughs> um so you set up, you tackle, you touch on all these things. You've got sexism, ageism, um, racism, um, economics. You have all of these little parts. You give us a little something and throw in some culture at the same time, uh, which I thought was really cool. The whole idea of the little statue uh, that everybody seems to want. Um, so... It's this is a lot of fun. It's set up kind of like a Columbo episode. Oh well, thank you. Yes, um, and and true. We if we're having a, a mystery here, we need truly motivated bad guys. Uh, uh, we also have a lawyer, uh, Shyster. <laughs> That's the word. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> who? Um, uh, I mean, the one thing of value that these young women have is ownership of this building. And, you know, ownership of any building in any major city has quite a bit of value to it. Yes. Um, and they, you know, their goal, they also have a commitment to, um, there was some tenants in this building. We call them the old timers. Mm-hmm. Um, veterans who lived on a pension and not much more. You know, if the building's sold, they're going to get pushed to the street. Right. And so they have, you know, more than just a desire to solve the crime. You know, they have a motivation to protect this building, protect these uh, old timers. And um, we wanted to keep, you know, a, a sense of mystery through this that, you know, anybody could have been the killer. And so... Um, and, and and also we wanted to include we just uh, I have quite a few friends uh, of Chinese heritage and you know there's a, a limited amount of stories out there that involves Chinese culture in a straightforward way not a um, big trouble in little China type mm-hmm. uh, uh, viewpoint but so we we wanted to include that and um, and keep it relevant topical. Uh, current, we we didn't want to slide back into the 1950s noirish. I mean, this is a, a contemporary film with contemporary issues. So. Yeah, and you know we've got a contemporary Cagney, you know, wannabe Cagney and Lacey's, uh, you know, in our heroines of Nick, uh, Nick O'Connell and Ping Lu. Um, so you know what's not to like? You know what? As I I couldn't help but think as I'm watching this entire film. Chris, I see this as a series. You could go so many places as an episodic with this, with all the little things that you touch on here, with the old timers, the veterans, um, you know, with the culture, with the area, with real estate, with the police department. Um, I could so easily see this expanding into a, you know, a drama series. And, and we've really received a lot of positive feedback 
along those same lines. Um, we're currently working with a producer who is, uh, I guess I think the correct term is shopping it, has kind of a first look deal with uh, one of the major streaming uh, companies. So um, that's out there. Who knows where that'll go? But um, we really, you know, I guess, you know, intentionally, okay, if the, if the crime is solved, you know, is that just the end of these two young women's lives? I mean, here they are. They've come back to the big city. Um, they've solved this crime. They're in the office. You know, what, you know, what is their future? And, and oh, we hope there is one for them. Um, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But yeah, I see this, I see this expanding into an episodic uh, kind of format with each episode focusing on the girls doing something, something in the community, something, you know, culturally, something, you know, to help those, the, those that are downtrodden, those, those that are often overlooked. And I could see that based on how you've structured their personalities, especially the character of Ping, that that would be something, you know, she has such a caring a caring and compassionate, you know, basis to her. I really like that. And the fact that she actually rubs off a little on Nick and tries to, you know, temper the, you know, flop in the chair, put the boots on the table, swig a bottle of Jack Daniels nonstop, um, and you you don't care about anything. But you see that start to change in the way this is crafted. Uh, and I I like that about your two protagonists here. Yeah, they, they, we didn't uh, really uh, uh, portray their their uh, backstory. What originally caused the animosity between them? They I mean, they were childhood friends. They they loved going down to visit their grandfather and hang out in his office. And oh, things went bad. Um, over time, and now they're, they're thrown back together. But we were really, I mean, both uh, uh, Draw Erkin and Freya Tingley's performance, I mean, we, we think they were just spot on. Um, you know, Freya as the, the bitter, um, dishonorably discharged Army veteran, and uh, uh, Ping, whose um, backstory includes a short with the city police department where she uh, um, had a little problem with alcohol and a meter maid's card and driving it into a store and so see, on. We, and so need, so, we need to see all so, this. We need to see all this. So, so yes, we, we hope that there's enough interest to allow us to develop these characters, you know, flesh them out, uh, kind of reveal their... Uh, uh, motivations, you know, mm-hmm. wh- how they ended up, you know, at this point in their life, you know, with uh, a, a life of poor choices that have brought them to this place and time right now, and and how they can continue to work together, and you know, work in that Chinese Chinatown culture um, with the specific crime and mystery that, uh, um, you know, could be revealed with Mm -hmm. uh, um, some more, hopefully, episodes or sequels, something like that. We we really 
feel positive about uh, uh, these two young women's performance and and where they could go in the future. Now, this is your first screenplay, is it not? Um, uh, first produced screenplay, first yes. First produced one. Um, uh, you know, yeah. what, uh, what kind of journey has that been for you to get a screenplay and actually have it produced and made? Uh, I, I was just a fortunate set of coincidences. I had been writing for, oh, wow, 20 years, and it's difficult out there as a screenwriter. Um, I attend um, in Sacramento, California, is the Capital Film Arts Association, and they have a monthly program, and one of the guest speakers, and this was some three years ago, uh, was a lady named Joanne Butcher. She, um, from filmmakersuccess.com, she guides uh, screenwriters, actors, directors into producing their first feature. And she, you know, guided us, you know, every step of the way and, and really was a, a, a positive force in seeing this through to completion. Um, because I, uh, I ha- had, you know, some familiarity with, you know, production and so on. But, you know, with her and with this experience, um, we, we completed Bad Detectives. And since then, we've also completed a- another film. So um, we, we feel very good about our past here. <laughs> now, how did you and Presley hook up because uh, Presley I know he couldn't join us today because I think he's shooting or, or working on something on a project um, but how did you and Presley hook up for Presley to become the director on Bad yeah. Detectives um, yeah we were uh, advertising uh, early on for to, to fill these positions and uh, from a referral from another person who brought us to Presley and and wow, we were just impressed. I mean, here's a practical, um, you know, hardworking, you know, character with with a vision, you know, and uh, and which is just, I mean, there's a lot of people with visions and auteurs, and here was somebody who had uh, years and years of experience um, as a, a union camera operator. He's been mm-hmm. on a lot of sets. He knew what works and what doesn't, and you know, and could spot problems, you know, before they became something that, you know, would, would, you know, uh, uh, be detrimental to our whole production. So we were very fortunate to have him and um, I'm uh, proud to uh, count him as one of my close friends now. And of course, you've now moved on. The two of you collaborated, as you mentioned, you know, your next film, The Contrast, which you adapted from a play. Is that correct? Um, yeah, and we switched genres. Uh, the contrast is a romantic comedy. Um, oh, that's a big a, switch. A good dose. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, with a, a a good dose of satire, and it was or it is based on the first professionally produced play in America, um, way back in 1789, and uh, a, a fellow by the name of Royal Tyler. Uh, was worried about America kind of backsliding into this royalty, regal, European, um, English uh, uh, way of life. So he crafted a uh, uh, just a just a great play full of 
just some biting satire and romance and drama. Um, and I could share a log line if you're interested. Oh, please do. Okay. Yes, we have um, on the day before her marriage to a cool hipster playboy, a young woman meets an army colonel. And she must decide to follow her family commitment or follow her heart. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. So, so she has just this short amount of time to, and she's pulled back and forth. Um, you know, what's she going to do? So uh, we're looking forward to a late fall, early winter release for this. And um, we do have distribution with it. We're, um, uh, and so uh, uh, the wheels are turning there, and we're looking forward to um, having that out there and, and uh, something to look forward to, yes. Two in one year. Not too shabby. Not too shabby, um, Chris. Well, COVID had quite a bit to do with this uh, <laughs> schedule. And, um, and, and you know, the, the bad detectives that we hoped to release last year, it just, you know, it just had to get pushed back. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's not tragic, but un- unfortunately, you know, we're okay. We're just doing the the final post production work and adding credits. But you know, most most businesses were were shut down hard for yeah. quite a while. So um, last fall, we things kind of started opening up. We got things knocked out and and put together and and distribution and. Um, here we are for Bad Detectives. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm curious because with the contrast, you're adapting a play into a screenplay. Bad Detectives is wholly original. Do you have a different approach to how you tackle uh, each of those scripts? What is, what is your approach as a screenwriter um, to creating a script from scratch or, and or adapting from another work? Uh, I'm I'm, uh, I'm happy to share. I have been, whatever, attending, participating. There is screenwriting new on online courses. Uh, There's a pro series. There's a a master screenwriter certificate, so on and so forth. And uh, I highly recommend them for people who want to develop, you know, the the foundation, the, the backbone of scripts and everything that's involved with that dialogue and pacing and it's a wonderful program um these were both difficult in their own way um you know to for bad detectives to to craft a a mystery thriller with uh, something that's not so whatever uh um genre known Mm -hmm. and something that's fresh and original it's it's difficult to find new ideas that you know are, are entertaining and drive the story forward right um, and and then for the contrast this play was written in 1789 um, it's not Shakespeare but it's you know there's a lot of cultural things in those days that you know we don't you know ha- we have moved forward or moved past mm-hmm. like um, in the in the contrast, there's Henry Manley, uh, the uh, Army Colonel. Uh, in the original play, he has a manservant 
um, to uh, uh, take care of his, you know, needs and dressing and everything. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't have that anymore, and, right. and that's a good thing. So, <laughs> you know, so there's quite a bit of storylines that had really had to be freshened up and and you know brought into our uh, contemporary world. Mm -hmm. You know, jumping back to bad detectives. You know, how precious were you with the words on the page? And how collaborative were you and Presley once shooting started? Was there room for, you know, ad-libs by the cast? Um, because you've got uh, Jim Meskimen playing, you know, our shyster lawyer. And, I mean, he can turn on a dime as an actor. Um, so uh, I'm curious, did they have freedom to change dialogue, change things up, or was this pretty much stick to the script? Um, this was a uh, very open and I really encourage screenwriters to be flexible because you're on the set and, and an actor comes up with a cool line. I mean, use it. Don't, don't get locked into that mindset of, it has to be done this certain way. And um, and on many indie film projects, you know, locations change, um, mm -hmm. settings change, and you need to be flexible with your screenplay to uh, uh, accommodate those changes. And uh, uh, actors and uh, uh, you know, even the whole plot. So, you know, it changes every day. If anybody who's been on set, there is new lines being printed every morning for the actors. And then even then at that moment when they're, they're reading their lines and, and we were very fortunate. We had just a great cast who, who really, you know, brought authenticity and, uh, um, you know, and, and some of their own words that really, really fit. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I encourage that. Yes. Yeah, you mentioned the cast, and I have to say, Stephen Chan, who played Tony Chow, the assemblyman's assistant, he is he is excellent. He is excellent. He has he brings that charm, but a little bit of smarminess to him, and as the film goes on, and I really like that. Um, it adds another whole layer of ambiguity and suspicion. To the mix, yeah. Uh, uh, one of the, the character descriptions for Tony was, you know, he's a a, a timeshare salesman of the, you know, of the whatever smarmy kind, <laughs> and you know they're charming, they're polite, they're wonderful, and for only you know a thousand dollars down and a thousand dollars a month, you can own this beautiful home in some faraway country, and mm -hmm. so, you know, but. He, and he he brought it. I mean, that character, his portrayal was spot on. Oh, yeah. He he is just, I love seeing him on screen. But something you did very smartly is you also limited your locations here when you wrote this. The bulk of this film does take place in the detective agency. Um, and then we have one scene meeting with, you know, the the cultural... Guru, the Shadow Emperor, and that's in one tiny little location. We have the roof, uh, and then we have really a, a museum and then a party scene. But it's one scene, one scene. The bulk of everything takes place in one location. And that's very, very, that's very smart on your part 
for to do with an indie film. Yeah, and that was one of our goals. That trouble would come to Ping and Nick, and and I mean uh, from a, a budgetary standpoint, and and also just to bring life character to their office, you know, mm-hmm. which is a, a a big part of the the backstory was their grandfathers, and so um, it, it was you know a, a budget driven. Um, consideration but it, it really worked i mean we're really happy you know set design and the lighting wow it you know uh, uh, it really helped to give that noirish feel you know the grandfathers who who lived in a different time a, yeah. a different way of life and then here we have you know these two young women and so um yeah, that's a, uh, yeah. We're, we're we're happy with those those choices. Yeah, yeah, that that's a great thing you mentioned about you know in the office, the agency office, your your cinematographer Lee Narby, um, all his years as a gaffer being on set, boy, he real it really paid off because you get that beautiful neo noir look in the way it's lit, and the way it's shot, the way there's negative space, um, like something is always lurking. And they don't know what it is. Um, somebody could be in the corner, ready to attack at any moment. Wink, wink. Um, but mm-hmm. you know, that office is so key. And interestingly, Lee also he moved the camera around, so we get different angles in the office as well. So we get a, a greater sense of who the grandfathers were just by that office, and that definitely adds depth to the story. Yeah, really. Yes, we, we, we're, we're very grateful for Lee's uh, uh, contribution to all this and the lighting and, and, and the camera angles. Um, even in um, the attorney's office when uh, at the uh, opening mm-hmm. and King and Nick are, are sitting there and the camera was placed Above and high, above uh, Jim Meskimen's shoulder, mm-hmm. and you know, so it was up there, up against the ceiling, and so it was quite a sight to get that rigged up there. But you know, it really worked. It really, you know, portrayed his office, the lawyer's office, and yeah. these two young women. You know how small their characters appeared before the powerful attorney. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, you know we're we're very very happy with Lee's work and and would highly recommend him for any kind of a project. Well, unfortunately, Chris, we are all out of time today. You know, very quickly before I let you go, are you working on anything new? The contrast is in post. Um, we're going to see it in the fall. Um, anything else on your plate right now that you can talk about? Yeah. Um, not really yet. We have a, a project to start going into production this fall, winter. And um, uh, we're happy the COVID restrictions are, you know, we have some clarity now. And that's really been kind of, unfortunately, holding us and a lot of people back. But mm-hmm. um, we're, we're looking forward to our next feature. Well, I'm looking forward to the contrast. You've teased me sufficiently. Uh, but... Right now, everybody can see Bad Detectives. It's available on digital. So, Fourth of July weekend's coming up. People need movies to see. This is one of them. 
for a, a cool, entertaining evening, come visit the Bad Detectives. Ah, Chris, thank you so, so much. I hope you'll come back on the show when the contrast comes out. I, I hope so, too. I, I look forward to, to joining you. Yes. Oh, thank you so much, Chris. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you, Debbie. Yes. Bye. Bye. And that was Chris Johnson, screenwriter of Bad Detectives. It is out now. And, of course, Ty Roberts, 12 Mighty Orphans in theaters. Highly recommend. With the 4th of July coming, I got a couple of, uh, for the long weekend, this count on July 2nd, this Friday, The God Committee with Kelsey Grammer. This is a powerhouse film, people. Um, this is a must-see. It revolves around the issue of organ transplant. It is a fictional story, but it tackles all of the considerations. The UNOS list... Um, the list that they keep, what hospitals, you know, who comes up in order, who is the most qualified, but then greed and money and corruption comes into play. And do you just look at somebody medically as to whether they should get that next available organ? Or do you look at, are they somebody that wants to live or somebody that, eh, I don't really care. Um, Austin Stark, writer, director, Kelsey Grammer, as you have never seen him before. This is an amazing performance by Kelsey. Julia Stiles, Janine Garofalo. It is out July 2nd. I can't encourage you highly enough to see it. It will spark discussion and hopefully will open up everybody's eyes as to organ transplantation and the need for more organ donors. Really well done. Never preachy. Um... But see it. Uh, you've also right now. You've also got F Nine is out in theaters. The Ice Road on Netflix. Good on paper. All you General Hospital fans. Our beloved Sonya Eddy. She's in it late in the film. A small role, but she's in it. It's a cute rom com. It's a lot of fun. Lansky is in theaters and on demand now. It is the story of Meyer Lansky. Uh, I'll be talking with writer-director uh, Itan Rockaway tomorrow morning, very early tomorrow morning. So we'll have that interview for you on BehindTheLensOnline.net later this week. Um, the Forever Purge opens this Friday, July 1st, a great doc series on topic. Um, the Philly DA, it is a mini-series uh, on the Philadelphia District Attorney Larry Krasner. Uh Philadelphia DAs have always had issues. So, and this delves in. It was open the books, open the files, bring in the cameras. So, I really encourage you to see that. Uh, also on the second on Amazon Prime, The Tomorrow War with Chris Pratt opens. No links have been provided to me, so I can't tell you whether it's good or bad. I'm supposedly getting a link later this afternoon. So, take that as you will. Um, so, that is all the time we have today. We, of course, ran over, as we always do. Um, we will not be here next week. We are taking, Pam is getting her th a three-day 4th of July weekend so she can spend all her time at Knott's Berry Farm. Um, we will be back 
the following week on July 12th with a full house. We got a full house into August already. So, happy 4th of July, everybody. Be safe. No fireworks in the backyard where, the, where it's not allowed. Uh, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Thank <laughs> you.